What's up, guys? Brian Ratliff here. Just wanted to say thank you for tuning in to Keep the Faith Podcast. Grab your Bibles and let's dig in to the Word of God. While I was living at my house on Colonial Avenue, I experienced a major, major problem. And I'm not talking about a major sewage leak in the front yard or in my house. I'm not talking about the floor uh, falling in or termites taking over. And uh, I'm not even talking about groundhogs in my backyard. And many of you know how much I do not like groundhogs. I actually discovered creatures that are far worse and hideous than groundhogs. And they're birds. At first, you know, when I bought my house, you know, on Colonial Avenue, I saw this kind of like a large swarm or herd of birds in my backyard. They were just kind of going around and, and digging up the worms in the backyard. They would utilize my, my tree, they would utilize my shed, and they would utilize my roof. They just loved to hang out at my house. And at first I thought it was, you know, all fine and dandy. Until I began to discover how dirty and filthy birds can be. Leaving their droppings, you know, you know what I'm talking about without going into detail, all over my back porch. And then discovering that they decided to crawl through a hole in my awning and make a gigantic nest in my gutters. And it caused a problem. It caused an issue to where every time it rained, you know, the awning is on your back porch or your front porch to protect that area from getting uh, soaking wet by the rain. But because the birds nested in every aspect of the, gov- uh, the, the gutters around my awning, the water was every square inch covered my back porch. Didn't matter if I had a chair back there or whatever it was, it was going to get soaked by water. Then all the extra wood for their nest was all over my back porch. No matter how many times I got my broom out and swept that stuff off, about a day or two later it was covered again. Feathers everywhere. I'm telling you, it was horrible. (laughs) And every time I would go out my back door to go down my steps and get into my car, these birds would fly out of the awning. Every single time. So I was constantly looking over my head to see if I was going to get you-know-what on my head or my shoulders. And then they would fly off and land in a tree and just stare me down. And then get on top of my roof and stare me down every time I would pull in and out of my driveway. And so finally my patience expired with these birds and I said, I'm going to war. Because there's a conspiracy in my house. They're trying to take over my house. So I thought to myself, I'm going to get my 22 out. I'm going to show them who's boss. And then I thought to myself, well, I better not kill these birds because, um, you know, my neighbors might call the cops on me if I start shooting my twenty-two. Then I decided, you know, I'll get my pellet gun out because they won't hear that. But then I thought, well, if, if I miss the bird by chance and hit a window and break the window, I'm in a very serious problem. And then I thought to myself, you know, maybe I shouldn't kill these birds because maybe there are some type of species that I could go in prison by killing them. I can see the headlines now. Pastor in Roanoke kills birds, spends life in prison. (laughs) I certainly didn't want that. So I did what I only knew what best to do. So I called up my my dad. And I said, Dad, how in the world am I going to get rid of these birds? 
<laughs> so we took the awning apart and got rid of the bird's nest, and no, no birds were harmed. And, and he had an old fencing that he put around his garden. And what we did is we cut it up into small pieces and balled it up and put it in these sections where they were crawling in and getting into the gutter. And I thought everything was great until I heard a bird crawling around in my gutters. I went to all that trouble and trapped a bird inside the gutter. And I said, I'm going to leave that thing there. It deserves to die. <laughs> and then my conscience began to eat me alive. And so I just took the, the thing out, and there that bird flew out of there in no time. Now, I share all that to, to say this. Yeah, I know, it, it, it seemed to be a conspiracy at my house that these birds are trying to take over. But whether it was or not, I want you to think about how in our passage today in Matthew chapter 26, as we look at this scene in the life of Christ, there was a conspiracy to kill him. And so today the title of my sermon is this, The Conspiracy to Kill the Messiah. That's what's going on here. As we think about the death of Jesus Christ, the vicarious death, of Christ. That big theological term, as Brother Joel just talked about, just means that this person would suffer on behalf of another for the benefit of the other. And so that's what we're going to see here in Matthew chapter 26 and 27, that when Jesus dies, he did it so that we could benefit from his death. And he would totally appease the wrath of God on the cross. As we think about these next five sermons... This kind of mini-sermon series within this larger sermon series. Here's the thought I want you to understand as we think about this scene in Christ's life. The vicarious death of Christ means Jesus suffered on the cross to pay for the sins of humanity once and for all. That is the thought I want us to take away with as we think about this Sunday leading up the next five Sundays but the key thought for today's sermon in of itself is this. Satan's conspiracy to kill Jesus on Calvary was Christ's sovereign planned destiny. Did you hear me? Satan's conspiracy to kill Christ on Calvary was his sovereign planned destiny. In other words, these religious people, in, in, in accordance with kind of Satan's agenda and his scheming and his planning, was trying to annihilate and decapitate and destroy Christ. But in the middle of their scheming and conniving, we see there was an overarching sovereign God at work and that God was going to take their scheming and conniving and planning and use it to bring glory to his name. And today I want to kind of ask and and think about this question, what does the Bible say about the final days of Christ? I mean, we think about the life of Christ, but we know that the Bible is God, is our final authority, and it is God's word. So what does scripture say about the final days of Christ here on this earth? And what does it say about his death? Well, Matthew chapter 26 and 27 records the death of Christ. In fact, all four gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them record the death of Christ. But the book of Matthew seems to, to, des to describe more of the scenes in more detail, and so that's why we're going to dive into this passage. But there are going to be times where Matthew's gospel is silent on a specific scene, and so we'll go to another gospel to see that scene. But today I want to just think about five different scenes today, these first five from verses 1 through 30. And the first one 
is in the first five verses that we read. And it is the plot to kill Jesus. Remember, Satan's conspiracy to kill Jesus on Calvary was Christ's sovereign plan destiny. This was the reason why Jesus came. This was why he was born of a virgin. This was why he preached his sermons. And this is why he did his miracles to lead up to this miraculous death that Jesus would die. But we see that here, in fact, he was just on the Mount of Olives delivering his, his amazing sermon about the end times and his return. And now he transitioned here. And now Jesus is, after he finishes all these sayings, the Bible says in verse number one, that is his sermon on about uh, the end times. He says, you know that after two days is the feast of the Passover. And we'll talk about this Passover here in just a few moments. But the Bible says, and the son of man is betrayed to be crucified. Have you ever been betrayed before? I literally felt like I was being betrayed by those birds at my house because I was my house, not their house. So many times we, we think about this idea of betrayal, but, but this right here was the worst case of betrayal. Where the Son of God, the Son of Man, the creator of the universe, clothed in flesh, is tabernacling among mankind, and their mankind, even the religious people, the Sanhedrin, is scheming up a plan to kill him. And we know this had to take place due to prophecy. And we know Satan was in the middle here, kind of edging it all on to come. But in verse number three, the Bible says, Then assembled together the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now this, we believe this was the group of Sanhedrin. That is, these were the religious leaders of the Jewish people in the day of Christ. And here in this scene, they're gathered together at, at a place or a palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas. One of these days, as we'll see, that this earthly high priest Caiaphas is going to meet face to face the heavenly high priest Jesus. And that day, we'll set the record straight of who exactly is the high priest. But in verse 4, it tells us the reason why they assembled together, the reason why they gathered together and met. It says, because they were having a consultation of how they might take Jesus by subtlety. In other words, take him away at a time that was most appropriate from therein. And then it says, not just take him away, but also kill him. I do find it interesting in verse 5, it says that, they were speaking and says, let's not do this on the feast day because there might be an uproar among all the people. How interesting it is that, that throughout history, leaders of groups of people or religious organizations or even nations and, and countries and, and empires have always, in a sense, be cons has been concerned about pop opinion. That is the opinion of the people. And here, they did not want to do something that would cause a riot or an uproar that was unnecessary. Because they knew that, that so many people had begun to follow the teachings of Christ and believe that he was the Messiah to come. And here, they are plotting and scheming a plan to take him away privately and with great subtlety and deception so that they could kill him. And we know the story that he would die. But this right here is the first scene and his death. The plot to kill Jesus. But now let's look at verses 6 down to verse 13. This is the second scene. In the death 
of Christ. And it's the anointing of his feet at Bethany. Or the, his anointing at Bethany. Notice here, this, by the way, this passage here, the anointing of Christ at Bethany, it appears in Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel, and John's gospel. And in, if only you read Matthew and Mark, you would not know exactly who this woman was. But in fact, if you read John's gospel in John chapter 12, the Bible speaks in verses 1 through 8 about this scene. And the Bible says in verse number 3, Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. I find it interesting that here in Matthew and in Mark, it doesn't specifically say the name, but we know that Mary was the one involved here due to uh, John's gospel. But look at verse 6 of Matthew 26. It says, Now when Jesus was in Bethany. Now it is interesting that in John's gospel, it does emphasize how this is the same area in which Lazarus died. And, and that's where he went to visit Lazarus and Martha and Mary. It says, In the house of Simon the leper. Isn't that interesting? Uh, of the, the times and ways that we can be remembered, Scripture records that this man Simon was a leper. I'm thankful today that Jesus has the power to cleanse lepers. And I'm reminded of that when I read that phrase. But look at verse 7. It says, There came unto him a woman having an alabaster box of precious ointment and poured it on his head. Notice here it says head. In the other place it says feet. So in other words, it gives this idea that, 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 that this woman, Mary, came and just poured this expensive ointment on Jesus' head and his feet as he sat down. And now the disciples in verse number 8 in Matthew's gospel says that they were not pleased with how all this went down. Because this was a very expensive ointment or type of oil or perfume. And they thought that it should be sold and that money to be given to the poor. Now, that sounds like me. It sounds like that, hey, we don't need all these expensive things um, to worship God so we can use that money for other aspects of getting the gospel out into the world. And so I understand their position. I do. But notice what Jesus said. He says, the poor you always have with me, excuse me, the poor you always have with you, but I am not always going to be with you. And so he said that the reason why Mary did this was to prepare him for his burial. Interesting. He says in verse number 10, Why trouble you this woman? For she has wrought a good work upon me. For you always have the poor with you, but, but I am not always going to be with you. He says that she did this in verse 12 for my burial. And then he says, I love this part of the story. Because in verse number 13, Jesus places his stamp of his word by the Holy Spirit of God. And he says, wherever the gospel, this word gospel, it literally means good message or good news. Wherever this good news about my life and my death and my resurrection is going to be shared all over the world, whether it's herald forth, you get in that street corner and you just share the good news. This woman and this story will also be shared. Isn't that interesting? It says for a memorial of her. Because she took something that was so expensive and so rare and something that was so valuable to these people's minds and she took this and she poured it on the head and the feet of Christ. And he says, what she did will be honored because she prepared me for my burial. So this is the anointing of Christ at Bethany. That is seen too. But now, 
We've seen also the plot to kill Jesus, scene one, but now let's look at scene number three from verses 14, 15, and 16. Remember, Satan's conspiracy to kill Jesus on Calvary was Christ's sovereign planned destiny. Jesus was born to die on the cross so that he could pay the penalty for humanity's transgressions. But what does the Bible teach about this? What does the Bible say about the death? What does the Bible say about these scenes? Well, now look at verses 14 through 16. This is the third scene. In this scene, Judas agrees to betray Jesus. Judas agrees to betray Jesus. The Bible says one of the twelve. Have you, heard our, have you ever heard of the saying, keep your enemies close, but your friends closer? We see that in the life of Christ. Yes, Jesus went and he preached to the multitudes as we looked at last week. Yes, he went and, and he healed those. And, and scripture cannot record, excuse me, scripture doesn't record all that. And, and if somebody were write it all down, even a library in Congress, the Library of Congress wouldn't fill it all. So Jesus did many different things. But he invested most of his time in 12 people his 12 disciples. And he commissioned them in Matthew chapter 10 to go out and share the good news to the Jewish people before going to the Gentiles. And so he invested them. And, and, and here the Bible says that one of the 12, one of the ones that he poured his life into for three years, came to these chief priests, came to these what we call the Sanhedrin, or these religious leaders, about 70 of them. And he says to them, what will you give me? Notice these words. Can you imagine being a disciple of Christ, living right with Jesus, spending days with him and, and hearing him face to face, and then walking up to these religious chief priests and, and scribes and Pharisees and says, what will you give me if I deliver the Messiah, Christ, into your hands? And they said, 30 pieces of silver. Now, I'm no historian, and I'm no financial guru. But what I have read is that these 30 pieces of silver in today's standard is somewhere between $91 and $441. So let me ask you something. Would just a few hundred dollars be worth betraying the Son of God? Absolutely not. Can you imagine such a, my, I, I mean, I could get it if somebody gave you two and a half billion dollars. I could see the temptation there, but $441, that's nothing. And here, the Bible says that Judas succumbs to this temptation, and it just doesn't say he succumbs to it. The Bible says in verse number 16 that from that moment, he sought. From that moment, the Bible, it literally gives this idea that he watched for the right time to betray him. Here we see that, that this, of course, was, was in a sense the predetermined plan of God to accomplish his sovereign will so that Jesus, the Son of God, could die on the cross. And so we know that, that, that this person had to be uh, risen up like Judas. Prophecy speaks about this. The prophets did. But here we see that it, this is prophecy coming into fruition. And Jesus was betrayed for just a few Think about that. Let's assume it was $441 of our day and time and money. Let's just raise up to $500. $500 
can't buy you much in today's culture. And those 30 pieces of silver, it probably couldn't have bought you much in his culture. It's not like he could have been financially free for the rest of his life. But the Bible says in other places that for the one that betrayed him, it was better if he were to never have been born. This right here is the beginning of the betrayal of Christ. He was anointed at Bethany. There was a plot to kill him. Remember that, that this Satan's conspiracy to kill Jesus on Calvary was Christ's sovereign plan, destiny. He was born to die on the cross to pay the penalty for mankind's transgression. But now let's look at verses 17 down through verse 25 and, and think about the fourth scene in this concept of the Messiah's death. This fourth scene is Jesus celebrates the Passover with the disciples. Now, I'm sure you, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to understand what the Passover was. The Passover goes back to the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, the Bible speaks about how the Israelites were under captivity with the Egyptians. And there they were in great bondage. And, the, and a ruler in, 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 in Egypt, a Pharaoh, rose up who did not know Joseph and didn't probably like the Hebrews. So he, he enslaved them and made them work and work and work and work over time and over time and over time some more. And Moses and Aaron were raised up to go into Pharaoh's palace and say, Thus saith the Lord, let my people go. And finally, Pharaoh lets his people go. But the final night, there they were to sacrifice that lamb. And they were to put that blood on the doorpost. And there, the Bible speaks about how if you didn't have that blood covering the doorpost, then the firstborn of that household would die. This, of course, would typify how Christ is our Passover. And how Jesus is our Passover lamb. And how if the blood of Jesus Christ isn't covering your account and your transgressions, then you, my friends, will not enter into the gates of glory. Today, I, I stand before you as I am a sinner just like the rest of them, but I have been saved by the grace and mercy and love of God. And so now when Jesus looks at me, he doesn't see my contaminated flesh and sin. He sees the blood of Christ covering me. And it is by his righteousness and faith in him that I received this good news. But see, these Jews here, they were celebrating the time when, when Moses was raised up by God to lead the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt into the land flowing with milk and honey. And it was a multiple day feast here. They would do this, the days of unleavened bread. And this, by the way, is the time when Jesus died on the cross. We know that whenever the Jews celebrate the Passover, that is the time period in which Jesus died on the cross of Calvary. But here the Bible says in verse 17 that it was the days of these unleavened bread. And these disciples, they came to Jesus and they said, where, do you, where should we go and prepare for this feast to eat the Passover? And he said, go into his city uh, to such an individual and say to this man, the master says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And in verse number 19, the Bible says that, that the disciples did as Jesus has appointed them, and they made ready the Passover. And then, and the Bible says, when even was come, he sat down with the twelve. Now, now, I want you to understand, so many times we're so guilty of reading Scripture with 21st century eyeglasses. 
So when we think of our big table, maybe you have a long table in your dining room and, and maybe you have a long stool there, maybe you have chairs around it, maybe you have a small table, maybe you have a table for four, maybe you have a table for two, maybe you have a table for 20. I don't know what you got at your house. But, but imagine a table that we eat at in our day and just erase it from your memory breaks because that's not how they ate then. In fact, historians tell me they didn't use chairs. So they had a low table and they sat on the ground. So just imagine Jesus is sitting on the ground at a table with his disciples. And that's how they had this Passover meal. Or at least that's what they tell me of how they had it. And in this meal, Jesus began to speak to them about how he would be betrayed. And he says in verse 21, Verily I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. And each of them were so full of sorrow. They began to say, Lord, is it me? Lord, is it I? And he said, he that, I don't know how Jesus couldn't make it any more obvious. He said, he that dips his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. And he says, the son of man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Then verse 25, we just read about Jesus a few verses ago. It says, then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, master, is it I? And he said, thou hast said. In other words, you have well said. Here, Jesus celebrates his Passover with his disciples. Today, I'm not saying that we need to celebrate this exact feast and look back and, and honor the time when, when Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt. But what I do think that we need to honor and celebrate is the Lord's Supper that he initiated right here in the next few verses. Because just as these Jewish people gather together and they look back and they have this big feast, a, a kind of festival type of thing, looking back at what God did in Egypt thousands of years ago. Listen, if you want to celebrate that, you can. But we have freedom today in Christ that we don't have to be tied to those festivals and feasts and holy days of the old covenant. We don't have to do that anymore. But what we are commanded to celebrate is the Lord's Supper. And that when we gather together, we celebrate Jesus' death on the cross, his body that was broken, his blood that was shed. And that leads us to the fifth scene here. From verses 25 to verse 30, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and 1 Corinthians, we read about how Jesus, here at the end of the, Lord's, at the, end of the Passover meal, he has his final Lord's Supper with his disciples. I like what one commentator said about this supper. He says, or one article. It says, one of the church's two ordinances or sacraments, the Lord's Supper, was instituted by Jesus to commemorate his death, to symbolize the new covenant, to point to a fellowship of a redeemed people gathered at his table, and to anticipate the messianic banquet yet to come. And when we gather together, we do it here on a quarterly basis. Some people do it more often. Some people do it not at all, as often as we do. But when we gather together, we have that time. We are commemorating the death of Christ on the cross. And here he says, do this in remembrance of me. Now, now many of you have come to this passage and you've heard all the debates. There's really four different views about the Lord's Supper. And today, I just kind of want to briefly share with you these four and share with you why we believe what we believe here about this. But look at verse 26. It says, and they were, it says, as, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and he blessed it and he broke it. And he gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. 
And as we read this phrase here, take, eat, this is my body. Some will also go to John chapter 6 and speak about how you got to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And the first view, this is a big word, a big term, but it's called transubstantiation. And the advocates who teach this is the Roman Catholic Church. And what they teach is they teach during the time when they have what they call the Holy Eucharist or the Lord's Supper or Communion, is in the moment when the priest, the earthly priest, blesses that bread and blesses that wine, it transforms into the literal physical body and the literal physical blood of Christ. And I'm sorry, that's just not what happens. But here they come and they say, take, eat, this is my body. And he says, take this cup, drink ye of it all, for this is my blood. And so they go and they take this literal aspect here. You know, it's funny. Sometimes people take scriptures literally when they should not take them literally. And they take them symbolically when they actually should take them literally. So let's, let's think about this. If this phrase, this is my body and this is my blood, should be taken literally, then what do we do about when Jesus says, I am the door? <laughs> is, he, is he literally that door right there? <laughs> when he says, I am the vine, is he literally the grapevine out in the backyard? literally? Is he literally the road or the way? Is he literally that road, 220? See, there are times when, when Jesus is speaking, he is the vine, he is the resurrection, he is the life, all these different things. And here I believe that, that he was literally saying that, but it was meant to be taken in a figurative manner. Just like here when it says, this is my body, this is my blood, this is not to be taken literally, it is figurative. Now, that leads me to the second view here. I know it's a big term, transubstantiation, but the second big term is consubstantiation. Now, if you go back to the 1500s, you read about a guy by the name of Martin Luther, and he kind of had his, he, he bucked many things of the Catholic Church, and then this was one of the areas that he did not like, but, but he didn't fall too far with consubstantiation. And basically, what he says about this is that they coexist together. That this wine and this bread coexist with Jesus. Somebody illustrated it like this. It's like a sponge. You take a sponge and you put it in water. The water is not the sponge and the sponge is not the water, but they come together. I don't know about you, but that just, I can't wrap that around my mind. It sounds crazy and far-fetched to me. But that's the second view. The third view is what's called the memorial view. And this was popularized by Zwingli, one of the reformers back in the 1500s. And it was later adopted by Baptists. And what this does is, is yes, we believe that, that when Jesus takes this bread, he is saying, this is my body. He is saying that this cup, this is my blood. But he's not meaning that this is my literal body and this is my literal blood. He's saying right here, in fact, he says this. He says in verse number 28, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remissions of sins. But then he says, but I say to you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until the day in which you are entering my Father's kingdom. And in another place, it says, this do in remembrance of me. 
And so when we think about the concept, this do in remembrance of me, remember Paul said that in Corinthians. And in another parallel passage of the Gospels, it speaks about that. And so he literally says we are to do this in remembrance. And so I have come to land with the guy Swingley back in the 1500s, not because I'm a Baptist preacher, not because I'm a part of a Baptist church, but because I believe this view of the memorial view that this, this blood, or excuse me, this wine just represents his blood, and this bread represents his body that was broken. I believe that is the best way to understand the Lord's table and the Lord's supper. And then the final one was promoted by Calvin, and it's called the spiritual presence view. And Calvin was a brilliant mind in theology, but he wasn't satisfied with the Roman Catholic's view of the Lord's Supper, and he wasn't satisfied with, with Zwingli's view of the memorial view. And so he said, because the Holy Spirit makes true fellowship possible here and now, the Holy Spirit is Christ's spirit, he lifts up the heavenlies to feed on Christ. Those who eat the bread and drink the wine in faith are also, by the power of the Holy Spirit, actually being nourished by the body and blood of Christ. Now it's interesting. All these things are interesting to think about. But keep this in mind. We know that when we have the Lord's table, God is present with us. He is present with us. But the best view here is the memorial view. And so Jesus here, he has this, this Lord's Supper with them, and he, he institutes for not just these disciples to do this, but, but for, the, for the rest of us to do it, the church till kingdom come. And then the Bible says that after he did all these things, they sang a hymn, and then they went out into the Mount of Olives. Satan's conspiracy to kill Jesus and Calvary was Christ's sovereign plan destiny. Jesus was born to die on the cross to pay for mankind's transgression. Can you believe that we're already in 2022? So many times I wake up and I think that we should still be in 2020. It's just, it's mind-blowing. Um, according to one resource, 80% of people who make New Year's resolutions fail by the second week of February. Maybe, maybe you've already failed on yours. Um, I actually, somebody asked me the other day, what, what is my New Year's resolution? I said, I never really made one. <laughs> Why even make one if I'm going to break it every year? <laughs> but, but one article says, good habits, especially ones drastically different from typical lifestyles, are hard to get started and even harder to keep. They say research shows, on average, it takes about 66 days for a habit to become automatic. One article talks about all these different top New Year's resolutions for our new year. Of course, lose weight, eat healthier, go to the gym and exercise, spend more time with friends and family, be more aware and take better care of your mental health, sort out finances and cut back on spending, travel more, take up a new hobby or sport or other interests, be more environmentally friendly and, and look for a new job. <laughs> yeah. I, I like the thought of a New Year's resolution, but it's interesting that most people don't live it out throughout the year. But as I was thinking about all this, I thought about the Christian resolution. 
I'm not here to tell you what you should or should not do for your New Year's resolution. But what I am here to tell you is that this is the Christian's resolution, I think, for every day. And here's what I wrote down in closing. I resolve to submit to the sovereign plans of God in my life every single day. Jesus could have called 10,000 angels down to rescue him. In fact, he could have just jumped off that cross, but he didn't. He submitted to the will of God the Father every day of his earthly existence for 33 years. And the same should be for you and me. In fact, Romans 8 speaks about how God works all things according to his plan and for his good. And so today, I, I know that, that we've been through tr trials and we've been through tragedies, we've been through triumphs and we've been through victories in our lives and we're gonna experience more of that in the future. In fact, the longer we live, the more victories and the more defeats we will face. But as we think about all that, we need to understand that no matter what the future has in store, I resolve to submit to the sovereign plans of God in my life every single day, just like Jesus did even to his death. There was a conspiracy to kill the Messiah. But the reality is, is that was the sovereign plan of God. What's up, guys? Brian here again. Just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to today's episode. You can check out this full message at PastorBrianRalph.com or Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. Keep the Faith is a ministry of Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. If you're free one Sunday or Wednesday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. Until next time, God bless. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. Keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith.